Oh God, we come before you this morning, worshiping you as the God who has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. A God who has chosen to reveal himself to us, first of all in creation, in the things that are above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. You've chosen to reveal yourself most importantly by taking the form of man and condescending to us and living on this earth, walking where we walk, feeling what we feel, understanding what we go through. And then having died the death that we deserved and been raised to life, You've left us with your Holy Spirit and with your word. And so today, this morning with Bibles open, to one who may walk off the street, it may appear that a group of people have gathered to listen to a man speak. And yet we know that what is taking place or what is about to take place is far more than that. For it is your word that we desire to hear from. And so we ask that you would be pleased to meet with us. We ask that we would take this, you would take this psalm, which some of us perhaps have never examined before or haven't looked at in a long time, and cause it to come to life for us, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first sermon I've ever heard on Psalm 120 is just about to begin. Last week, I had the opportunity to lead us through six songs during our time of corporate worship. Today my assignment is to lead you through just one. As we've been making our way through the summer of Psalms, this morning we find ourselves in the fifth and final book of the Psalms. The fifth book begins in Psalm 107 and it continues uh, through to towards the end of the book of Psalms. And perhaps the most well-known psalm in book five of the psalms is what? What do you think would be the most well-known? 119, right? It's known for a couple things. Why might we think of Psalm 119? Long. It's the longest book, longest chapter in the Bible, right? Not only the longest psalm, it's the longest chapter in all of Scripture. We also might think of Psalm 119 not just for its length, but for its singular focus on the theme of God's Word. And then another well-known and much-loved psalm is Psalm 121. Some of you may even be able to recite that from memory. In fact, one of the songs we just sung a few minutes ago was based on Psalm 121. I lift, my, I lift up my eyes to the hills. 
where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And nestled between these two psalms, Psalm 119 and Psalm 121, is Psalm 120, a short and perhaps neglected psalm. For those of us who grew up in churches that sang out of a hymnal, today's psalm is like that little-known hymn or song that's sandwiched between an amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and a come thou fount of every blessing that we sing and go to many times. And yet, in between, there's this song. It's in there in the hymnal, but you've not heard sung before, or even if you've been singing out of that hymnal for a long time. At least that's what it felt like to me when I first started looking at this psalm. It marks the beginning of 15 psalms, known as the Songs of Degrees, or the Songs of Ascents. And for a brief primer on the Songs of Ascents, I would direct you to our church's YouTube channel. Uh, how many of you knew that we had one of those? And the first 11 minutes of a sermon that one of our elders, Albert Castaneda, who was up here a few minutes ago, brought to us on February 19th this year from a different psalm, a different song of ascent, Psalm 127. And he began his message by talking through what these songs of ascent were. The summary of those 11 minutes is that these songs are what many Bible scholars believe were sung by the people of God on their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Even though there isn't full consensus on the, the meaning behind the title, Songs of Degrees, Songs of Ascents, several of these 15 psalms were written before the exile, such as the ones that are written by David and by Solomon. And other scholars believe that the Jews were coming out of exile when they started to sing these songs, or at least when these songs were put together uh, to form these 15, this group of 15 songs. And that these songs gave hope to them as they were journeying. Now, most of you know my family and I are from Kenya. And while we do not have any experience with undertaking multiple-day journeys while singing, this imagery of Jewish people singing these songs of ascents, it did bring to my mind several instances in our Kenyan culture where movement from one place to another is accompanied by singing. Weddings and funerals in particular are full of singing during movement. And on the morning of a wedding, a whole host of women from the groom side of the family will gather some distance away from the bride's home and they will begin to process towards the home while singing songs, song upon song, until the bride emerges from the house. The bride is often not in a hurry, so these women will easily sing dozens of songs joyfully and energetically. And then later, after the actual ceremony, the bride and the groom will usually leave their guests uh, eating at a wedding reception, and they'll go off to a different location for uh, a photo shoot, and they'll come back about an hour or so later to join their guests. And upon their arrival at the reception, once again, a large group of women mostly will surround the car a good distance away from the venue, and they will sing and sing around the car, marching around right, until the couple emerges, and then they'll proceed to sing and dance with them 
until they get to the venue where the guests are seated. And again, that could all be a, dozens of songs uh, throughout that movement. Similarly, but in a very different situation in funerals, most people are not in Kenya are not buried in cemeteries, but rather on their farm or at their parents' farm in a rural part of the country. And there'll usually be a service that's held uh, at the homestead. And eventually those in attendance will fall in line behind the family and they'll process towards you know, the, the back corner, if you will, of the farm where the gravesite is. And all the while, all this movement will take place while they're singing as they go. There'll be lots of singing as the casket is lowered. And then comes time for the young men to grab shovels and shovel dirt into the hole. And again, a lot of singing will take place during that time. It takes 20 minutes to half an hour to fill those six feet with soil. All this to say, across history, across cultures, and even to this day, singing has often accompanied movement or processions especially during occasions that are marked with great emotion. Whether joyous, as in the case of a wedding, or somber, as in the case of a funeral. When Pastor Rod kicked off this series earlier this summer, he pointed out that there is a melodic line, if you will, that can be traced throughout the Psalms. You remember what that is? It was a call for the blessed man to praise God in every situation, everywhere, and at all times. A call for the blessed man to praise God in every situation, everywhere, and at all times. Pastor Rod also explained that the way the Psalms are put together is not a random hodgepodge like a dog's breakfast. I had to look up what a dog's breakfast means. Um, just a, a mishmash of things. Rather, there is a beautiful general movement from lament to praise throughout the Psalms. This same movement is featured in these 15 songs of degrees, these songs of ascents. The progression from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134 is such that there is something of a buildup. There is something of a crescendo in the prevailing character or the mood of these psalms. And so we begin here with the very first of them, Psalm 120, a psalm of lament, calling out to God for deliverance and continuing on to a declaration of God being the source of our help in 121, which we sung earlier, and on and on, culminating in a call to doxology for all God's people to come and bless the Lord with lifted hands in Psalm 134. And so this morning, we focus our attention at the beginning of this section with this specific song of lament. Throughout the Psalms, when we encounter Psalms of lament, we are struck by how raw they can be, how bold and how direct the psalmist is, and how honest they are about feelings of pain. At the same time, these songs of lament are not fatalistic. Rather, they are informed by the character of God, which forms the basis of the psalmist's faith and confidence. 
And as a lament, today's psalm is no exception. Specifically, this psalm is a song of individual lament as opposed to corporate or communal lament. You'll notice in verse 1, the words I and me. And then verse 2, me. Verse 5, you can see me and I and I again. Verse 6, I and my. In verse 7, I and I. It is a deeply personal psalm. When we went through Psalm 14 earlier this summer, which is a communal lament, we were reminded that a lament is a groaning. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow, usually due to a crisis situation. And so, as we begin to examine this text, I'd like to present us with... Okay, not what I was expecting... Proposition, voila. When in distress from the lies of others, the pilgrim's hope for peace comes from the Lord who delivers. When in distress from the lies of others, the pilgrim's hope for peace comes from the Lord who delivers. Before we unpack this proposition and move into our outline this morning, I need to say a word about the unusual structure of this psalm. It made me think of a pretzel, in case you're wondering what the inspiration for the Auntie Anne's pretzels next to the donuts and bagels was all about. When you look at a pretzel and you try to figure out where the beginning and end of the strip of dough that was used to make it is, it's not immediately evident when you look at it from top to bottom. Right? And as such, you might notice that this proposition, when you read it, it doesn't jump out to you in a straight reading of the psalm from top to bottom. In fact, a straight reading of this psalm from verse 1 to 7 straight down has led some to conclude that this is a psalm about repentance, which you'll notice is nowhere to be found in this preposition, proposition. The second note I'd like to make structure-wise is to point out the abrupt and awkward ending of the psalm. With very few exceptions, most psalms, and even most songs that we sing today, and in some kind of resolution at the end, both musically and lyrically. This psalm does not. And so at the beginning, the, the beginning of the psalm, verse 1, ends up doubling up as the appropriate end of the psalm as well. You may have wondered why uh, Miss Mason read the, the psalm three times or multiple times. At the beginning, well, the first reason is because when I first started examining this psalm, I read through it and my immediate thought was, huh? I had to read through it a couple of times just to begin to get the gist of what was being said. And I'm hoping it served you well to hear it a couple of times and engage your mind as to what exactly is being said here. But the second reason is that singing this psalm or reading it, as it were, as a round song, where you get to the end and loop back to the beginning and sing it again, has proved to be a helpful way to arrive at the meaning of the psalm and internalize it. And, this is speculative, but who knows, maybe given the length of the journey that these pilgrims were on, the Jews who first sung these songs perhaps 
sung them as round songs. They're, they're so short, and they have so long to go. And so how is it that they were able to, you know, sing for the entire duration without repeating these songs? And so I present here a singing pilgrim as our first point. And notice we're going to verse 5 and 6 to understand why we have this title of a singing pilgrim. Who is the subject of this song? Who is the I in verse 1? I mentioned briefly that David and Solomon are named as authors of some of the songs of ascents. But the author of Psalm 120 is not known to us. I have chosen the designation pilgrim for our proposition because of a couple of clues that appear in these two verses towards the end of the psalm, which help to paint a picture of the author. He describes himself in verse 5 as a sojourner. The word sojourn means to live as a resident alien, not as a native-born citizen. My wife, Wavinia, knows a thing or two about the term resident alien. In July of last year, we had only been in California for two months when she had to travel back to Kenya for an interview by the USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Department at the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. The outcome of that interview is that she is now the holder of a green card that categorizes her as a resident alien here in the United States. This means that she legally resides in this country and that her residence in this country is not predicated on being a student or holding some employment with a certain employer. In other words, unlike international students or foreign workers on H-1B visas, um, there is a permanence to her residency. In fact, the green card is often referred to as a permanent residence card, or the holder is re referred to as a permanent resident. It sounds more friendly than resident alien. And yet, at the end of the day, it is still home away from home. It's a joy to have my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law visiting with us. My sister-in-law lives in Philadelphia. My mother-in-law lives in Kenya, and in fact, she just arrived from Kenya this past week for a visit. Uh, she graciously allowed me to bring her daughter and her grandchildren uh, to California last year, and she's here to see that the place that we've made a home is, is, is a good place. Um, and at the end of the day, it's still home away from home. Now, of course, at a spiritual level, for us, neither California nor Kenya are truly home. And so, with the author of this psalm describing himself as a pilgrim, we can anticipate as Christians what it is like to be a pilgrim or a sojourner for whom this world is not truly home. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.20, he reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven for those who are in Christ. And we'll say more about that later. The psalmist, or the sojourner, then gives us two geographic references in verse 5. Meshech and Kedar, which are both Gentile lands. Meshech was a people on the southeastern edge of the Black Sea. This is now the northeastern part of modern-day Turkey. 
and Kedar was a nomadic northern Arabian tribe, descended from Ishmael and dwelling in the Arabian desert. So if you go to your map and you look at Arabia and the Arabian desert and you look at modern-day Turkey, these two locations are quite far apart. And so it's likely that these two names are not literally where this psalmist is, given how far apart they are, but rather a poetic shorthand for the Gentile world that the psalmist is dwelling in at this time. There's the pretzel. We've gone from verse 5 to verse 1. The picture so far is we have an individual lament sung by someone temporarily living away from Israel. We see now that he is under distress in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. We can either read verse 1 as a testimony from a past situation that has come and gone prior to the next situation that's about to begin in verse 2. Alternatively, and perhaps a better way to read verse 1 is that it is a heading or a summary verse for the situation that the psalmist is now going to expound on starting in verse 2. Either way, he is in distress in verse 2 and later in verse 5, he bemoans his woeful state. He says, woe to me. The question begs, what is the source of the psalmist's distress? Look with me at verses 2 and 3. See if you can spot a set of related words that suggest to us the source of his distress. We have in verse 2, lying lips. Also in verse 2, deceitful tongue. Again in verse 3, deceitful tongue. And so the next question is, whose lying lips and whose deceitful tongue is the psalmist referring to? Is the psalmist confessing his own propensity towards lying with the following verses 3 and 4 being his thoughts out loud on how to kill his own sin and tame his own tongue? While reading verse 1 to 4 straight through may suggest that, I don't believe that's what this psalm is about. Rather, it would appear that the perpetrator behind this pilgrim's distress is an external party. Verse 5, notice the last three verses of the psalm where we began earlier. I'm going to read 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And the implication is that they speak accordingly. This, the psalmist is saying he is for peace, and his words reflect that. Whereas they, those among whom he dwells, are for war, with the implication that their speech reflects that as well. And this deceitful speech that stirs up war is the source of the psalmist's distress. Friends, have you ever had someone tell a lie about you? In particular, have you ever had perhaps somebody you once trusted lie about you? If you have been in that situation before, you know just how deeply that hurts. You understand what it means for deceitful speech 
to stir up war or to antagonize. The word that's interpreted distress in our Bibles here has the idea of a narrow or a confined space. It's the picture of feeling trapped as a result of lies being spread about you. It can result in you feeling that after the falsehood that's been spoken about you, whatever you do from this point on will be interpreted in light of what that person said about you. It can be a very numbing and immobilizing feeling. And this is precisely why today we have a whole category of lawsuits for defamation filed by people who feel deeply harmed by the slanderous words of another. Slander makes you feel like you are trapped. These are those times that make you realize that the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt or never harm me, is simply not true. So what do you do when you're faced with a situation like this? When someone tells a lie about you or spreads falsehoods about you, this is where the psalmist finds himself. And what does he do? He calls out in prayer. Still in verse 1, to whom does the psalmist call? Verse 1 says, in my distress I called to the Lord. He calls to the Lord. When you and I are faced with a situation like this one that the psalmist is in, how long does it take you and how long does it take me to call out to the Lord? How often do we first go to our friends and say, hey, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so said about me. Can you believe he said that? Can you believe she said that? And only much later think to take it to God in prayer. We all know the old hymn. If you would sing the first verse with me. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If you've just woken up, that was not our closing song. I'm sorry. Later, in that same song, the hymn says, Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. That's what happens when someone who you once trusted lies about you. You feel despised. You feel forsaken. And the song says, Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And here in our text, verse 1 continues, And he answered me. Throughout the Psalms, we see the description of prayer in which the psalmist calls out to God in expectation of an answer, and the Lord answers. There are a dozen examples we could go to, but I would like us to look at just a few of them, all of them from the book of Psalms. If you turn back to Psalm 3, turn with me to Psalm 3 and verse 4. Psalm 3 and verse 4. 
The psalmist says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he did what? He answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verse 6. The psalmist says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Psalm 86. Psalm 86 and verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Psalm 91. Just a few pages over. Psalm 91, verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And then you might remember this just from last week, Psalm 99. Psalm 99, verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. For what does the psalmist ask? He asks in verse 2, for deliverance, for rescue. It's right there at the very top of the psalm in the ESV, which I use. The psalm is entitled, Deliver Me, O Lord. It takes a feeling of being overwhelmed to cry out for rescue. The image that comes to mind is that of somebody in the ocean being pulled under by a riptide and crying out for rescue due to the overwhelming force of the current that's pulling him. Again, if you've been on the receiving end of false testimony or lies spoken about you and spread around, you can relate to this feeling. Deliver me, O Lord, is the cry. But what else does he ask for? He asks for justice in verse 4. If we start in verse 3, the psalmist asks, What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? The passive form of the question reveals that the action against the psalmist's deceitful oppressors will not come from the psalmist, but from God. How do we know that? That's not explicit here. Well, the instruments of justice that are mentioned in verse 4, arrows and coals from the broom tree, are the same language of divine judgment used elsewhere in the Psalms, and I want us to see that. Read with me, or listen as I read from Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. In Psalm 11, a few pages over, verse 6, in Psalm 11, verse 6, the psalmist says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And in Psalm 140, Psalm 140 and verse 10, the psalmist says, Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. 
the broom tree, which is also called the juniper tree, is highly valued in Arabia for the manufacture of charcoal, which fetches a higher price on the market than other kinds because of its fine quality. It produces fierce heat that sustains fire for a long time. And so, it is the terrors of the Lord which are his arrows. And the wrath of the Lord that is compared to burning coals of the juniper tree or of the broom tree. The psalmist is saying to the deceitful ones that this is what is coming their way. The wrath of God. Now you may be thinking this is all well and good. But in the face of deep personal hurt, how is it possible to keep from taking matters into our own hands and retaliating for the ways that we have been wronged. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, which is what the psalmist does here. Speaking to believers, John Piper in his book Future Grace says this, The grace of God's judgment is promised to us here as a means of helping us overcome a spirit of revenge and bitterness. Paul's argument is that we should not take vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And to motivate us to lay down our vengeful desires, he gives us a promise. I will repay, says the Lord. The promise that frees us from an unforgiving, bitter, vengeful spirit is the promise that God will settle our accounts. He will do it more justly and more thoroughly than we ever could. And therefore, we can back off and leave room for God to work. Where in Scripture can we turn for examples of being falsely accused and not answering in kind? In the Old Testament, we could look at the story of Naboth in 1 Kings 21, a man who owned a vineyard that King Ahab saw and wanted, Jezebel, his wife's scheme to get the vineyard for her husband involved finding two false witnesses to speak against Naboth. In the New Testament, we could turn and look at the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, whose ministry upset the Jewish leaders of the day and who in turn instigated false witnesses to come and claim that Stephen had spoken blasphemously against Moses and the law of God himself by saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the Mosaic law. When brought before the council and asked by the high priest if this was true, rather than rail against his accusers, Stephen launches into his famous speech in Acts chapter 7 where he recounts Old Testament history from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, all the way down to the prophets and Christ himself. But the greatest example is from Jesus himself. Matthew in chapter 26 and Mark in chapter 14 each describe the account of two false witnesses at Jesus' trial who claimed that Jesus said he would physically destroy the temple, which was a misquoting of the words of Jesus that are recorded for us in John chapter 2 about his death and resurrection. And when the high priest asks Jesus for a response, Jesus remains silent. In fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7, which says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this example of Christ is, is likely what was on Stephen's mind when he responded to the high priest in the Acts 6 and 7 account. Leaving justice to God can be hard, especially when the stakes are high. And the stakes don't get any higher than what Naboth and Stephen and Jesus were facing when these false witnesses spoke against them. Next, we see here that this singing pilgrim longs for peace. Longs for peace. He's in distress. He calls out to, in prayer, and now he longs for peace. There's a longing in the heart of this pilgrim. Verses 6 and 7. Read, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What is the connection between lies and peace? We alluded to it earlier. I want to expound on that a little bit more. You've heard it said that the Ten Commandments can be neatly divided and put under the two greatest commandments, with the first four coming under love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the last six of the ten falling under love your neighbor as yourself. And with that construct in mind, it would therefore follow that those last six of the Ten Commandments offer up some of the most cardinal ways of pursuing peace with our neighbor. And conversely, the breaking of any of those six commandments has the opposite effect of war or instigation or a breaking of the peace with one's neighbor. Right after thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, comes thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Of all the ways that you and I can jeopardize peace with our neighbor, false witness, or what the psalmist describes as lying lips and a deceitful tongue, ranks right up there alongside murder, adultery, and theft. The last part of the psalmist's prayer expresses the longing for peace of a pilgrim who seeks a better country. Too long have I had my dwelling Here, he says, he bemoans his current place of sojourning or temporary dwelling where he's a resident alien expressing that it's been too long. And the psalm has this abrupt and awkward ending that's not typical. This is the experience of the pilgrim. As C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. James, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, he asks the question, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? As Christians in this world, it is right for us to feel a sense of restlessness, feeling uncomfortable with the ways of this world, and to long for the new heaven and the new earth when all will be made right. Even just in the last couple of days, tuning into the news, we are reminded of the broken world in which we live. This living, this restlessness, this discomfort with the ways of the world is in keeping with our forebears in the faith who are described 
in Hebrews 11, verse 13, as having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth and who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And so thus far we have talked about the singing pilgrim. We found that he was in distress. We've seen that he called out to the Lord. We've seen that he longs for peace. And now I want us to turn our attention to a faithful God. So taking this as a round song, we just got to the end of the song. But now we loop back to the beginning. And so I want to direct our attention to where we began. Verse 1 says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. If you were listening closely when I read that verse the first time, you may have noticed I flew through the second half of the verse, even though it may be the most important. And that's because we're going to talk about it now. This was intentional. Despite the unusual ending, we don't end with the psalmist. We end with God. I said in our introductory remarks that the the psalms of lament are anchored in the character of God. Look at every psalm of lament and see the basis on which the psalmist speaks. It's anchored in the character of God. Thus far, we've unpacked the various details of the psalmist's call. And here now, I'd like to see us to see that the one to whom the psalmist calls in his distress is the God who has been faithful in the past. It is the past help of God that is the basis of the psalmist's future hope. Isaac Watts wrote another old hymn, Our God, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. He describes God as our shelter from the stormy blast. In the second verse, he says, Sufficient is thine arm alone. In verse 3, a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Verse 4, be thou our guard while troubles last. It may seem like those troubles are never ending. But there is a God for whom a thousand years is as one day. And it is him who is our shelter. It is him whose arm is sufficient. It is him who is our guard while troubles last, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. For more on the help that comes from the Lord, we don't have to look far at all. The very next Psalm, 121, which I will not preach, famously begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is both the testimony and the hope of the pilgrim. And it is the same for the Christian today. We look back on God's faithfulness and coupled with his unchanging nature, he who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we derive the confidence, the faith, the assurance of things hoped for to look ahead to the future grace that is ours. That was a faithful God. Now I want us to see a picture of Christ. How does this psalm point us to Christ? We've seen in this psalm that on one hand, the psalmist desires truth and describes himself as being for peace. 
yet he dwells among a lying and warring people. In the Gospel of John 14, which I'd like us to turn to, verse 6, it's a well-known verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus describing who he is, the way, the truth, and the life. And yet just a few chapters earlier, if you turn with me a few pages to John 8, and read with me verse 44, you'll see that Jesus comes into this world and he dwells among a people that he describes as follows. John 8 verse 44. He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So on the one hand, you have truth and life personified. On the other, you have a, a world that is ruled by Satan. John 12, 31 tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world, who is a murderer from the beginning and described here as the father of lies. Truth personified, dwelling, living in this world, which is ruled, for now at least, by the father of lies. And we know how this story ends. Jesus not only withstands the devil's temptation during those 40 days in the wilderness, but ultimately by his death, burial, and resurrection, he conquers sin, death, and the grave, fulfilling the promises made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, the devil. When this Jesus, who is truth personified, is falsely accused, he does not retaliate. On the cross, he cries out to his father, and he entrusts himself to the care and for ultimate deliverance. And that deliverance comes in the resurrection. As one contemporary songwriter has said, he walked where I walked, he stood where I stand, he felt what I feel, he understands. We worship one who understands and is concerned about the everyday realities that we face, such as when lies are spoken against us. In times like this, we're reminded of our need for a deliverer whose name is truth, who has both the power and the compassion to deal with it. He has already defeated the father of lies, and he will bring justice upon unrepentant children of the father of lies. Moreover, in the courtroom of God's justice, in contrast with the false witness who lies about us, or the father of lies who accuses us before God the judge, we have one who is our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so I'd like us to conclude with a few thoughts. Is God convicting you? Is God convicting me of lying about somebody else? Maybe it's a white lie. Something that's not explicitly false, 
but is misleading about someone else. Perhaps to make you look good or to help you get ahead. To the liar, Jesus says, lying is of the devil. The father of lies in, him, in whom is no truth. If that is you today, if that is me, won't you repent and turn to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life? Won't you seek the forgiveness that comes only through him and then seek the forgiveness of your fellow man? Are you suffering at the hand of someone else's lies about you? Perhaps you hear that someone has been spreading lies about your character or your loyalty to Christ. Perhaps you're attending school, maybe high school or college. We've just prayed for two of our own who are going off to college. Maybe this might happen. The teacher asks the class some questions and points to you. You answer the question from a biblical perspective, and now you're the object of ridicule not only by your peers, but also by your teacher and perhaps other members of the school community. Perhaps it's a similar situation in your place of work. You believe in a literal creation, and that has caused you to be labeled as anti-science. In a world of lies and war, we call on the one who is truth and life and peace. We call on him for deliverance. The one who has demonstrated himself faithful. Third, how should this psalm guide us to persevere through times of distress? Perhaps you're here this morning and your source of distress is something completely different from the specific distress of the psalmist in today's text. Just locally to us, we've heard of recent attacks taking place on BART. We've, there's any number of circumstances in our day-to-day -day life that could cause us stress in the coming days or distress. What can we take from this psalm? You can still call out, call to mind the victory of Christ over your mortal enemy, the one thing that Christ has conquered, sin, death, and the grave. Right? We are facing various things on this earth, but ultimately our biggest danger, the biggest source of distress to us, sin, death, and the grave has been dealt with by Christ. We could call to mind the testimony of the psalmist here in verse 1, who calls to the Lord and is answered. We could talk to fellow brothers and sisters hear and be encouraged by their testimony of God's faithfulness in delivering them from various troubles. That's another reason why we gather corporately as a body. Now, for some, deliverance may have come through a removal of the source of distress. And for others, deliverance may have come through an outpouring of a measure of grace sufficient to deal with the circumstance. And so whoever you are this morning, it is to God that you must call. Either for the very first time in salvation if you are not in Christ, or during times of distress 
that are sure to come as we sojourn as resident aliens in this world for those who are in Christ. Call upon the Lord on the basis of his character. Truth, peace, faithfulness. Let us do so promptly. Let us do so confidently. Let us do so expectantly. We will undoubtedly call upon him imperfectly, perhaps by delaying to go to him in prayer in the first place or by praying with less than noble motives. And yet when we call upon this God, we do so in the name of the one who called upon his father perfectly and was delivered. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, how we worship you for who you are. You who came into this world, this domain of falsehood, you who were falsely accused and yet did not retaliate, you who entrusted yourself unto the Father for deliverance and who was raised on the third day victorious. Lord, how we worship you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, I pray for us this morning, for myself, for my brothers, my sisters who know you as we yet sojourn in this world. Perhaps you've brought this message to us just in time because of something that we will go through in the days ahead. Help us to resolve now to meditate on who you are, your character, your truth, you who is peace, you who is faithful. Help us to be quick to cry out to you. Help us to do so confidently with expectation of deliverance. And Lord, if there's any here this morning that is struggling with the very specific application of this psalm, somebody who has been lied about, somebody who's feeling trapped, somebody who's feeling like they are immobilized because of what somebody else has said, or perhaps somebody who is struggling with the desire to take vengeance into their own hands. Lord, won't you help us? Lord, won't you draw near? Won't you deliver such a one for your glory? And then, Lord, if there's any who is outside of Christ, who knows not, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, won't you open their eyes to your goodness, to your gospel, to your character, and bring them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.